Good morning, North Shore. It's good to see your faces. It's a joy to be with you again today. Uh, welcome especially to our online guests. Last week was weird. Um, and uh, apparently the last time we had to cancel a service was 2006. Uh, so by God's grace, it'll be another almost 16, 17 years before we do it again. And uh, that's the plan anyway. But of course, we're not in control of these things. And I thank you for your understanding. Um, at some point, it becomes a safety issue uh, for transit. And it just wasn't, it wasn't wise. But I'm grateful to be with you again today. You'll notice some oddities. If you've got sermon notes, it has last week's date on it. I'm saving paper. Okay. Um, I printed these last week, uh, and they've just come together today. And uh, you'll also note, you'll, if you're clever, you'll discover there are a couple mistakes on the notes. I'm still saving paper. And there's a reason why I'm not a mathematician and I'm a pastor, and you'll discover that as we go on today. Uh, it is, like I said, a joy to be with you all. This is now our second uh, Sunday in the season of Lent together. Uh, last week could have been the first. And as we've talked about it, this is a season of repentance and reflection on ourselves and preparation of our hearts and preparation of the soil of our souls to rejoice and celebrate with a kind of fruitful joy at the time of Easter. Uh, we are, as we said on Ash Wednesday, we are material and spiritual beings. We're not all material, we're not all spiritual, we're these amphibians in the universe uh, straddling two worlds. And what happens is that our lives get out of whack. The material has an excessive place or the spiritual is out of whack. And fasting is a way to realign our lives. It's a way to put our things back, ourselves back in balance with the way we're designed to be. And so fasting means denying something good so that you can put yourself back into that right relationship with things and with the earth. Um, and so we fast from things that we can feast upon and celebrate from. And so this is really good news. It's self-denial in the service of being more and not less human. I think that's terribly important. If you've not chosen a fast for this season yet, you can pick one even now. It's not too late to join the party. Um, and pick something. Pick something that you feel like, I've got a kind of too much dependence on this thing. I'm going to limit or restrain it or avoid it for this season. Uh, and then return to it with joy at Easter. Uh, and so it's a, it's a good thing that you can celebrate the return of. That's what's key about this. Now, Lent is a season of repentance, and Jeremiah was a prophet of repentance, so there's a kind of happy coincidence between our sermon series and the season of the church year, and his messages are especially timely in this season. Today and over the next five weeks, we'll focus our attention on several passages from Jeremiah that focus, I think, on repentance in some key ways. We'll talk about uh, what it means to turn into God's rest. We'll talk about condemning false hope. We'll talk about how Jeremiah's message fell upon deaf ears. And today, we will talk specifically about repentance. Repentance, repentance, repentance. It is an ongoing theme in the book of Jeremiah. If you've read Jeremiah, it's a lot about repentance. And you may even get tired of repentance reading it. Uh, but he comes back to it again and again and again. Um, and this today, what we're going to do is focus specifically on chapters 3 and 4, a section of chapters 3 and 4 and how this explains this. And here's the plan. I'm going to read the passage. It's actually quite a lot of scripture. I'm going to read through it and make comments as we go. I'll just read the passage, then make some comments, and we'll take our time walking through it. And then I'm going to re-kind of summarize it with, I think, our six things God wants us to do. Okay? I'll just, these will all be pretty quick. And then I've, I finalize with some questions. I think we might still have some questions about repentance, and I'll end with those things. So a warning, there is a lot of scripture today. There's a lot of scripture, a lot of stuff. For us. I didn't do it. Um, 
A lot of scripture, a lot of things for us to think about, and it's my beard. It's finally the Lord is telling me I have to shave it off. <laughs> don't, don't applaud. <laughs> That'll just, I'll, in rebellion, I will grow it down to my belly button. Braid it. Okay, all right. Okay. Um, there's a lot of scripture today and a lot of things to talk about. And, and, and I, I'm torn between two things. On the one hand, look, our repentance matters a lot more than our learning about repentance. The actions of repentance and actually turning our hearts to the Lord, that's way more important. And yet, the book of Jeremiah is full of words on repentance. In fact, a huge part of the Old Testament is full of words on repentance. And so, in some ways, we need to be comfortable just hearing it again and again and again, because that's what the Bible does. But then we have to act in response to it. Anyway, let's see if we do it well today. And let's kick off with Jeremiah chapter 3, uh, 6 through chapter 4, 4. I'm going to talk about parts of it, even if I don't talk about every single part. I'll highlight some verses, and uh, I should, we should be able to highlight a few as I walk through it. So here's chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. Then the Lord said to me, Jeremiah, in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought... After she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all her, the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. Now this opening paragraph sets us up with a bit of the historical context that we've talked about over the past weeks. Verse 6, in the days of Josiah the king. And this ties us to Josiah's uh, renewal movement. They have a rediscovery of the book of the law. We think it's Deuteronomy. They read it, a rending of the heart, and now there's this mo movement throughout Israel to preach repentance. Jeremiah is a preacher in this revival movement in Israel. Now, Israel, remember, is divided into two kingdoms. Israel is in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south. And in the generation before Jeremiah, Israel had been exiled for apostasy. But even then, despite their exile into Assyrian lands, God was hoping that they would return. Even up to the very end, God had hope that they would return. And so what we see in this passage is a hope that Judah in the south would take note of what happened in the north and would respond better. Do you see what happened in the north? They didn't listen and they're gone. You've got a chance. Please repent. And so this is Jeremiah and God's hope that there would be a real transformation in this but they also wouldn't listen. So verse 10 says, they did not return with all her heart, but rather in deception. That's interesting. So the revival was a fraud. It was only outward show. It didn't move inward to the inner part. And so there was a kind of sham, what? Sham emotionalism, uh, sham responses. We don't, we don't have the reasons for it. All we know is that it wasn't really good enough. And this then is Jeremiah's commentary on the failed revival. A brief kind of aside as well, uh, God talks about adultery in this, Israel committing adultery, Judah committing adultery, and adultery here is the violation of a covenant promise. You promised to be gods, uh, gods alone, and now you're going to other gods. 
And that's a kind of, you cheated on God, is essentially what this means here. Okay? So chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, I'll read the next section. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, and here's what Jeremiah has to say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you, and I will take you from one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So maybe we're getting a picture here of what God wants um, from Israel and Judah alike. Verse 12, return, faithless Israel. Return, I want you to come back. Come back to God. Come back to your covenant maker. Come back to the king who rescued you from Egypt and has called you and made you and blessed you and made you large. Come back to me, he says. And we get a snapshot of how God wants this to happen in verse 13. He says, only acknowledge your iniquity. Just want you to acknowledge your iniquity. They want you to admit that you're wrong. This is difficult to do, isn't it? It's hard to admit that we're wrong. We don't like it. It's much easier to blame other people, isn't it? Right? It's much more fun. It's not that you were speeding on the road and weren't paying attention. It's that that idiot pulled out in front of you. It's their fault, right? Okay? It's not the fact that you were late leaving your home. Oh, no, no. It's not your fault at all. We're fantastic buck passers, right? Always want to blame other people for our stuff. But, but the word of the Lord says we have to acknowledge our iniquity. We have to say, we have to admit that we're wrong. Uh, in the past weeks, we've been revising our, our North Shore Alliance leadership agreement. And one of the things we needed to do is to talk about some doctrines. And one of the doctrines we're talking about is sin. Um, and one of the things that's funny about sin, of course, is that everyone wants to pass the buck on sin. It's hard to look square in the mirror, hard to come face to face with the fact that I don't measure up. I don't have it quite right. And I want to read you just the, the kind of revised statement that we have on this. And just this is brief, but it gets us to some of these points. Uh, it says this, and it'll be on the screen. Sin is the word which describes the fundamental break in relationship between humankind and God. God is perfect in his righteousness, and a consequence of human sin is that we fall short of that perfect standard in our relationship with God, one another, and our world. It is important in today's world to stress that sin cannot be justified, excused, or explained away through context, psychology, determinism, or factors of cultural ideology. You don't get to explain it away. You can't pass it off as, oh, this is my culture. This is just how we do things. You can't pass it off as, well, you know, my, my parents were abusive, and, that, and now I just do these things this way because of that. No, you did them. And acknowledging sin means acknowledging that you have culpability in the things you've done, irrespective of the circumstances around them. It's hard to look in the mirror, isn't it? Hard to come face to face with where we fall short. But that's part of what the image of Christ and the word of the scriptures does for us. And one of the key factors of repentance is both a sincere look at our own wrongdoing and a refusal to justify it or explain it away. Hard space to be. Uh, next passage, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 15 through 21. God says, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding, 
It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord, they will no longer say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And it will not come into mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will, nor will it be made again. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. Then I said, How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations. And I said, You shall call me my father and not turn away from following me. Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice is heard on the bare heights, the weeping and the supplications of the sons of Israel, because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. I want to make some comments, but what I want to draw out is the idea that there are some rewards for repentance, and that's partly what I see in this passage. Uh, what we see specifically in verses 15 through 18. Uh, The first reward, verse 15, is God promises good leaders. If you repent, I'll give you good leadership. You'll have good governance. Uh, We live with with moderately good governance in the West, um, but many places in the world live with terrible governance, awful governance, right? Governors who rob and destroy their people and their land to benefit themselves and their cronies, Governments that don't, have, don't authorize their people with any power whatsoever. Governments that are systematically stripping away people's rights. And we've got, we're kind of middling in North America, I think, uh, but it's not terrible. And the idea of terrible leaders is a pretty wicked thing to have to think through and live under. And God promises he'll give you good leaders. Reward number two, uh, verse 16a, God promises prosperity. I will bless you abundantly in the places you are. Reward number three, verses 16b and 17, this business about the ark vanishing and about the temple of the Lord, this is the presence of God. My, I will be with you. My presence will be with you. And there will be no mediations between us any longer. You don't have to use an ark to get to me. I'll be there. Something quite lovely about the presence of God promised here. And of course, verse 18 is this restoration from exile that he promises as well. And maybe without going into too much detail, the main kind of overhanded um, overall thing is that there's a geopolitical wholesomeness when you repent. When you return to the Lord, when nations return to the Lord, something right happens everywhere. At least that's the promise from Jeremiah chapter 3. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the hills are a deception, a tumult on the mountains. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Here is another snapshot of repentance. And I think, for my money, verse 320, chapter 322 is absolutely elegant. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Sit with that. How beautiful is that? How many of you have a hard time holding on to your beliefs sometimes? How many of you struggle with doubts? How many of you feel kind of crippled by sin and where you feel like you just don't have it together? And God says, return to me and I will heal your faithlessness. I'll strengthen you so you can walk with me. Oh, it's beautiful, elegant. And then we get some more, 22b, how we do this. Behold, we come to you for you are the Lord our God. We turn to the Lord and we acknowledge who he is, the Lord our God. He is our Lord, our King, our Master, our Creator, our Defender, our Friend, 
our judge. He is all these things. We turn to him. And then verse 23. Surely the hills are a deception, a tumult on the mountains. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. This may seem obscure, but the, the returning to the Lord involves rejecting false hope. Uh, every top of every hill was a place for an altar, a place for sacrifice, a place where you could meet uh, uh, pagan priests and perform other acts in those places. And so surely what's happening on those hills, there's a rejection of the hedging of our bets, a rejection of the places where we've turned away from God that's tied to our turning back to God. We turn to God and we prove it or show it or display it rather by rejecting these things that are not him. Chapter 3, 24 through chapter 4, verse 2. But the shameful thing has consumed the labor of our fathers since our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our humiliation cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. If you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you should return to me. And if you would put away your detested things from my presence and will not waver, and you will swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in him, and in him they will glory. What strikes me is that there's another picture of rewards. If you will return, verse 1, return to me, followed by how we return in truth and justice and righteousness, meaning of the heart, but also with an eye towards committing acts of truth and justice and righteousness towards others, that the repentance of the heart manifests specifically, we'll get to this in a minute, in how you care for other people. Like your repentance is manifest in a kind of justice for the poor and the weak and the needy in your midst. This is in the background of this book as well. And then the striking thing at the end of verse 2, chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 2b, then the nations will bless themselves in him. Whoa. Our repentance isn't really just about us. Our repentance is about God's mission, that we repent and we become God's people so that his work is done. All the nations get blessed through the people of Israel. So there's some powerful stuff going on here. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Verse three, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. When I wrote this, I had already planned our little short meditations on thorns. And I didn't know these things would line up today in this way. Um, and as you can see, we've got some stuff on our platform showing, I mean, there are thorns here in our midst. And they remind us that we were in ground that is in danger of being choked out. These things have to be removed. And they're here for us. They're here to remind us that. And so we must do the work required to get our hearts right before the Lord. And the Bible frequently appeals to horticultural imagery in this. You've got to remove the thorns, and you've got to deal with the rocks, and you have to till the soil, and you have to wait patiently for what God is going to do. And then this striking image, verse 4, circumcise yourselves and remove the foreskins of your heart. Now, circumcision is the outward marking of the most intimate part of male anatomy. It's the outward marking, and it ties you to the promise of God and to the people of God. And Jeremiah says, that's not good enough. 
You have to mark the most intimate part of your most innermost person. That's where I want the mark. That's where it matters. I want your heart dedicated to me, not just your body. And this is where Jer Jeremiah really cements this. Okay, that's my flyby run-through of our chapter, of our verses for today, chapters 3 and 4. I'm going to change tactics, and in a kind of review, let me summarize what I think Jeremiah has just said in six things that God wants for us, all right? So number one, what does God want? Number one, God wants us to admit that we're wrong. God wants us to admit that we're wrong. Jeremiah 3.13, only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. You know, right from the very beginning, from the very beginning in the garden, we've resisted admitting that we're wrong. Remember? What does Adam do? It's the woman you gave me, right? He blames her. What does Eve do? It was the snake, okay? This buck passing right from day one. We wouldn't admit that we had made mistakes. And you know what? Because of sin and because of our inheritance of sin and our species, repentance is hard. It's hard. I don't want to pretend that it's easy to come square and face up to our mistakes. It's actually difficult. It's hard to admit, but we've got to do this. But we have to make these things to get it right with God. But I don't want you to feel a sense of excessive burden because there's nice ways to think about it too. Because if you find you're going the wrong way on the highway, repentance means getting off the highway, turning around, and going the other way. You will easily, hopefully, each of you will easily perform that action. And none of you is so headstrong that you will drive all the way to Chilliwack just to prove that you're not wrong. Okay? Stop. Turn around. Get back on the right path. And if you understand it as easily there, you can understand it in the rest of your life as well. Find the place you went wrong. Go back to that point and try and fix it. Okay? I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. There's some double commentary here right now because we love the idea that we're very progressive. But if we're progressing on the wrong path, it doesn't, we're not actually progressive. We need to be on the right path to be people who are progressing. And the sooner we admit we're wrong, the sooner we can fix mistakes. Okay. Number two, God wants us to return to him. God wants us to return to him. Chapter 3, uh, verse 12, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 22, return, O faithless sons. Chapter 4, verse 1, if you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you should return to me. I don't have to comment on this, do I? God wants you to return. He keeps saying it again and again and again. And I think I pulled three out, and I think rereading it, there's probably five or six times he says return in this passage. Okay? Great. Number three, God wants us to reject false gods and false hopes. He wants you to reject them. So 3.22 and 3 again. Return, faithless sons, I will hear your faithfulness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. And here, surely the hills are a deception, a tumult on the mountains. So here's this rejection of false gods, on the, on, as a part of our returning to God. And that's always what it means. Returning to God means finding those places where we had false gods and laying them aside. Another way to put this, there's no hedging your bets in salvation. There's, there's no second string. You've got to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for these things. And so we can't trust in our own power, our own cleverness, our own innate goodness. 
We can't trust in the fact that we're better than those other bad people, right? That's a fun one, isn't it? Well, at least I'm not Hitler, right? This is a really low standard on these things. Or may, oh, maybe for some of you, at least I'm not American. Ooh, okay. Okay? You can't trust in those things. Only in God. Number four, God wants us to change our behavior. He wants us to change our behavior. Jeremiah 3.10, in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception. The behavior didn't change. There was an outward repentance, but nothing happened inside. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 4, then circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. So there's a dedicated change in the innermost person. Now, interestingly, uh, this looks a lot like a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. And actually, I want to read you um, some verses from Deuteronomy now. Uh, And I think it'll show you both that this is strong evidence that Jeremiah had read this book uh, because he seems to quote from it, but it also frames the story of repentance again. Uh, In case you're interested, Deuteronomy is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Number one most quoted book in the New Testament. And so if it's not on your reading list, you might want to bump it up. And if it's not on your list of like names for your children or grand, never mind. Okay. (laughs) Verse, uh, verse 12, now Israel, this is Moses speaking, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? You're already hearing echoes of this, right? Hopefully. Same words, same ideas. And to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. The The refusal to submit to the Lord is the stiff neck. 17, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. You can't hedge your bets with God. It's him and him alone. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Key, what does justice look like? So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. How you care for the stranger and the poor is one of the key ways God's looking at you in justice. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. If you will cling to the Lord and repent from your ways, I will bless you. It's the promise of Deuteronomy as well. Jeremiah's found this book. He's read it. He also has rendered his heart and said, what have we done? We're not following this. He preaches it. Israel doesn't respond. And Jeremiah grieves because he knows the consequences of what happens. Okay. Let's move on to number five. God wants this change to come from the heart. He wants you to change, but he wants the change to come from the heart. And I don't have to repeat it. Circumcise your hearts unto the Lord. This is what he wants from you. There's all sorts of outward things we can do in repentance. We could cry. We could sing really loudly, right? Okay? We could, we could, we could beat our breasts. We could tear our clothes. We could, there's all sorts of outward things we can do to prove to people that we're really repenting. But it's the inward change that really matters. 
That's the thing that matters. God wants something from within. And so I'd say God is more interested in the inner heart than the outward form. This has always been the case. He's always more interested in what's inside you than what's on the outside. He cares more about where your heart is than he cares about the outward deeds that you perform. I'm going to read you another passage so that you hear how widespread this repentance stuff is throughout the entire Bible. This is the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Come, let us return to the Lord. There's that word again. It keeps coming up. Maybe there's something we need to listen to in the word return. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim, in the north? What shall I do with you, O Judah, in the south? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. In the desert, a morning cloud gets wiped out by the sun. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Just so you don't think it's only Jeremiah who thinks these things. It's throughout the Old Testament. Sixth and finally, God wants all of this so that he can bless both us and the world. And this is that astonishing phrase here at the end of chapter, uh, verse 2 in chapter 4. If you will return and swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in him, and in him they will glory. We've been called and chosen to reflect God's light, and we get dirty, and repentance is like cleaning the lens so that God can shine through more clearly. It's as simple as that. Uh, I, I think I've used this image before. If you guys are sitting down to watch a big hockey game and you find that your kids have eaten yogurt and smudged the television with their, their nasty, dirty fingers, right? Or if you have grandkids who lick, who everyone likes to touch, they've got touch screens in the world, so they think your TV is also a touch screen. You're going to clean it so that you can better enjoy the view. And here, repentance is cleaning your life so that the world, uh, God's world, can better enjoy the view. There is a buzz. Okay? I promise I didn't do it. So here's the six things. He wants us to admit we're wrong, return to him, reject uh, false hope. He wants us to change, change from the heart, and he wants all of this so he can bless the world. And when we don't repent, you know what people see more than God's good news? They see our sin. That's what they see. Now, we're all sinners. We have to admit it. None of us is perfect. But we're sinners who've repented. And then they see our repentance rather than our wrongdoing. All right. That's Jeremiah chapters 3 and 4 on repentance. But I think you still might have some questions. So as I wrap up, I just want to tie, I want to tie us off with a couple questions here. Actually, I say, think you've got some of you have five questions, but there's actually six. And there's two number fours on your notes. Um, and I found it after I'd printed and said, that's eh, not worth it. So it's more fun to explain. Number one, why do we need to repent? Why? Well, God made you. God designed you. God called you. And you've rejected his instruction, violated his design, and ignored his call. You belong to God, and you've pretended that you don't and acted like you don't. So you need to repent. 
It's the chief reason we need to repent. Uh, in the words of Paul, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're called to God's glory. None of us matches up. So that's why we need to repent. Number two, how do we repent? Well, turn, return. Remember, that's what we keep saying, return to the Lord. I talked a few weeks ago about Lego. I always make mistakes. I find myself, I have to go back to find the point of mistake and fix it in the image, <laughs> and then I fix it, and I can move on. It's as simple as that, making it right again uh, from some of these things. And this is with God, but also with one another. Find the point of break in your relationship, go back to that point, and try to make it right as best you can. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, this won't be on your screen, chapter 6, verses 16 and 17 says this, Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Ask for the ancient paths and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Go back to the place where things were right and walk in those ways and then you'll begin to make things right again. Now sometimes the relationship will be too broken. Sometimes, you know what? The person you need to fix things with is dead. How do you fix it? Uh, and this is why there's, I've talked about this before as well. There's a Hebrew practice called teshuva. And in repentance there, what it means is when you are confronted with the same circumstances again, what choices do you make? I can't fix it with you. But the next time in this scenario, I can behave differently. And I will fix it with each successive person I meet. That's also change from the heart, isn't it? And there will be people in your lives that don't, you know what, even if you want to repent, they don't want anything to do with you. But you can live rightly with everybody else, can't you? And in light of that, you can live um, the grace of God towards other people. Number three, how do we find out where things went wrong without appealing to a golden age? You guys know what a golden age is? You think back to when things were really great about 30, 50 years ago. Remember how nice life was back then, right? Everybody knew who they were. We weren't as confused. Everything was clean and understandable, right? We didn't have to recycle or worry about plastic waste, right? Life was so much simpler. You can, kind of, you can think about these things. You play games, finding a golden age. And I think that asking after the ancient paths can sound like, can we just get back to when things were good? But I don't think that's the case. Uh, because the truth is, no era has ever been normal. No time in history has ever been right. And the truest answer to the question is, when did things go wrong? Is the garden. That's where they went wrong. And it's been a mess since then. Okay? However, and this is what's important, every era gets some things right and some things wrong. And if we're not connected in some meaningful way to how things worked in the past, um, sometimes we'll miss the fact that our ancestors have criticisms for us for things we can't see. And of course, there's things looking back that they couldn't see, that we can also see. And so we need to be in a position where we can hear the critical voice of the past that says to us, wow, you're really messed up. And we don't say, well, we are more progressive than you. Okay, activate questions about, is it really progress or is it not? Okay. And I think this is part of what it means to ask after the ancient, pa ancient past. It means to give our predecessors a voice in criticizing our times. For example, the way Jeremiah gave Deuteronomy a voice to criticize his time, and the way we are giving Jeremiah a voice to criticize our times right now. Okay. So this is part of this process. Question number four, what's the role of emotion in repentance? I think this is a huge question, don't you? How emotional are we supposed to be in these things? Jeremiah and Moses demand, emotion, demand repentance from the heart. What does it mean? 
Is repentance only valid if we grieve and weep and tear our clothes and beat ourselves? Uh, if you remember that uh, Henry II, King Henry II of England, he, uh, he arranged for the murder of Thomas Becket, his, um, his uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, and this is his famous play, famous moment, true story. And in repentance, he had to stand um, basically naked in front of the altar, and he was publicly beaten by all of the monks and bishops. Is that the only valid repentance? To do these things, these massive public displays? And God wants repentance to be heartfelt, but the outward signs can be deceiving, right? All of you have met people who cry a lot of crocodile tears. I'm so sorry, it'll never happen again. It happened again, Right? <laughs> There was no real change, and there's, there's things we have to see. And the emotion of repentance is really less important than heartfelt change. Now, when we love God and we love people and realize we've wronged them, there should be, there should be grief on our part, shouldn't there? If you've wronged somebody, you should have a sense of, oh, I want to make it right. And that's the most important emotion of repentance. Question five, when do I get to stop repenting? The answer is when you stop going wrong. Okay. A couple problems. Our, 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 our desire to go wrong is intrinsic. Uh, even when we try to get it right, we get it wrong. <laughs> we need help even to get it right. And repentance is something that we do, but it's also something that God does in us. He leads and guides us and walks with us. And maybe the more important question is, am I in step with the Almighty on this? Last question. What do we need to repent from today? What is it today that we need repenting from? And we can answer this in a couple ways, and I don't want to take a ton of time on this. I'm just going to list some things. The first way to answer it is to say, what would our ancestors say? People in church history, if they were brought forward a thousand years to today, and we're given the ability to communicate with us cleanly and easily, what would they say about us? I think they would say, y'all are sexually confused. You're very confused. And they would condemn us on that. They would call us distracted. You have no attention span, do you? They'd criticize us for that. Uh, they would talk about our use of time. You're not at church every Sunday? It's not me. It's the ancestors saying it. It's okay. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right? And they would probably criticize our quality of belief. You don't, you don't know these things about your faith and about your Lord and about your history? I think those are the things they might criticize us for, okay? And the other way to answer this question is to say, what are some timeless ways that we need to repent? Well, number one, we always, in every age and every time, neglect our first love. Our first love is the Lord our God, and we are always tempted to put other things before him, every age, every time. We always uh, fail to nurture the spiritual life. We could do a better job of growing spiritually. Uh, we always uh, fall into a confusion between God and other gods in our hearts and our thinkings. And partly it's just hard to keep our focus on God and God alone. We get, we get distracted. And then in every age and every time, there's what we call moral casuistry. We're always excusing something by means of all sorts of uh, faulty reasoning in every age and every time. Um, I want us to close today with... Um, in the coming weeks, we'll have a prayer of confession um, each week. But today, we're going to talk about this prayer. I'm going to talk about it for just a minute, and then we're going to pray it together. In the successive weeks, we'll pray it during our intercession time. But it seemed appropriate today to finish my sermon with this prayer of confession. Uh, it's an Anglican prayer. It's reasonably old. 
Um, and I'll just walk through the words of it momentarily. Most merciful God, we address our prayer of confession to a God who is abundant in mercy. We confess that we have sinned against you. We speak with our mouths and say the truth that we are uh, wrong, and we've been wrong against you. And we've done it in thought, in word, and in deed. That's everything, okay? And not quite everything. By what we've done, we've actively done things, and what we've left undone. There's stuff we should have done but didn't do, and we're culpable for that as well. And then we say, we've not loved you with our whole heart. These are the two great commandments. Nor have we loved our neighbors as ourselves. We violated the greatest commandment. What do we say? We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. Now, you may not feel truly sorry at the moment, but saying the words gets you on the path. You know how you're supposed to feel. And here, repentance is not, I feel really sorry. Repentance is, I'm sorry, and I'm going to try and turn back to you, God. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Okay? So I want to give you just a moment. Would you bow your heads and take a moment? In fact, I invite our musicians to come to the platform while we do this. Um, and I, I don't anticipate... Um, I've, I've talked about big things. I've talked about repentance in big ways. And each of you knows where the Spirit of God is leading you. You've got a nudge. Uh, For some of you, I'm going to say this, for some of you, there's a heavy burden in your stomach right now. As I say these words, there is a sense of grief and burden and maybe even anxiety because you know what the Lord is asking of you. And I just want to confirm that he's with you in this. He's with you. And he wants to walk with you through this. So in this moment, just quietly, quietly hold that place that you need to confess. We're going to pray this together in a moment. I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to say this prayer together. Just before I do that, I want to point out that we, during, oh, you can stand now, that's okay, yeah, that's okay. Um, uh, During our, we've got these two songs right now, and we have a chance to pray. And we have uh, Craig and Wendy, and Kathy and Janice. Uh, Craig and Wendy will be over here, I think, Kathy and Janice. You can go where you like, Kathy, just be found. And they're here. Go, receive prayer. Hear from the Lord. It's your chance to meet him this morning. Let's uh, let's pray this prayer together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.